Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. What I'd like to do today is talk about the emerging security challenges for Australia in Northeast Asia. Um, and I particularly want to address the question of how and why the Rudd government is putting forward um, the Asia-Pacific Security Cooperation Model as a way to address some of these challenges. Certainly uh, a kind of pan-regional model, but by implication a model, if you listen to the Prime Minister and Stephen Smith and others, that they believe is equally opposite to, to, to Northeast Asia, um, by, by definition, when they're talking about a pan-Asian model. I want to challenge that uh, argument, and I want to do it uh, in a number of ways, which hopefully will become apparent uh, as, as the presentation progresses. Now, the basis of this research is largely um, uh, research for uh, a chapter I've been asked to contribute to um, the latest Australian World Affairs series edited by Ravenhill and Cotton, uh, and it's also uh, part of something uh, I'm doing for the uh, Conrad Aldener Foundation, um, uh, the, the Asian uh, kind of branch office in, in Singapore. So a lot of the arguments that I'm, uh, some of the arguments I'm putting forward today, yeah, will we'll need some work, and, and obviously I'll be very um, grateful for any feedback uh, from 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 uh, you. Of all the sub-regions in Asia, and that includes Southeast Asia, Central Asia and South Asia, Northeast Asia is strategically the most important for Australia. While in many ways Australia's most important relationship is with Indonesia, the most critical countries for Australia in Asia are China and Japan. These two countries are Australia's most important trading partners, and the Sino-Japanese-US triangular relationship will be the single most critical uh, variable shaping major power dynamics in Asia for the foreseeable future. Australia also has significant interests on the Korean Peninsula. South Korea is Australia's fourth largest trading partner after China, Japan and the US. And Australia has a direct stake in the future of North Korea's nuclear weapons inventory. In aggregate terms, roughly over half uh, of Australia's total trade balance and investment is located in Northeast Asia. Of course, China and Japan accounting for the major share of that. And although Australia has important strategic interests in other part of Asia, what happens in Northeast Asia in the 21st century will shape Australia's strategic destiny like no other part of the globe. Against this background, the obvious strategic policy aim for Australian governments in Northeast Asia is the promotion of stability and predictability in relations between regional states. Closely re related to this is the maintenance of healthy bilateral relations with key states in the region. In this presentation, I identify three areas where Australia confronts its most serious challenges in Northeast Asia. Each of these areas will, I argue, to a greater or lesser degree, determine the latitude Australia has to safeguard its strategic interests in Northeast Asia and in Asia more broadly. The first of these is the evolution of major power rivalry between the US, China and Japan. Obviously not between all three, um, but we're talking really here about two dyadic uh, major power rivalries in the region, US-China, China-Japan. I'll, I'll um, elaborate on that shortly. As a secondary power uh, in Asia, Australia has only a marginal influence over how these interactions evolve, overlaying a classic... Uh, uh, overlaying uh, the classic vulnerability of secondary powers in the international system is the unique situation facing Australian policymakers today. Never before have they had to deal with the likelihood that a US-led security order in Asia will not be the dominant framework 
for future interactions in the region. The evolving rivalry between China and Japan in a context where American regional influence is perceived to be declining presents Australian policymakers with some unsavoury scenarios which centre upon the possibility that at some future point they may have to choose between falling into a China-led regional order in Asia or bandwagoning, uh, to use uh, the Kenneth Waltz uh, term, bandwagoning with a regionally isolated but still strategically powerful Japan allied to a weakened uh, US. The second challenge facing Australian policymakers is the rise and increasing reinforcement of China's influence in the region. Given its deep economic relationship with China, Australia is especially vulnerable to any interruption of China's upward trajectory. Yet, by the same token, Australia is, 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 um, Australian policymakers remain suspicious that Beijing is looking to project its growing influence, uh, sorry, its growing strategic power more purposefully into the region, which would, from Australia's perspective, complicate America's future role as offshore balancer in the region. The third area that poses a challenge to Australia achieving uh, uh, to Australia is achieving equilibrium, uh, or I should say, probably uh, uh, maintaining equilibrium on the Korean Peninsula. North Korea's emergence during the last decade as a nuclear weapons state has introduced a new uh, strategic dynamic into Northeast Asian security and has solidified the existing view in regional capitals that the DPRK must not be allowed to collapse because of the risk that control over its nuclear assets will no longer be possible or that these weapons will end up in a, uh, a Korean military force follow, following, a pan-Korean military force following reunification. Both of these scenarios, needless to say, would seriously complicate Australia's strategic interests in Northeast Asia, not least because it could well lead to further proliferation uh, in the nuclear realm, of, uh, including on the part of Japan. Now, in the context of Northeast Asia, uh, if we focus on this sub-region rather than all of Asia, the Rudd government's uh, so-called Asia-Pacific security community, these days spelt with a little c rather than a big c, and there's a story behind that, um, uh, this community model is counterproductive, I argue, to safeguarding Australia's interests in, in Northeast Asia in two, specific, in two specific senses. First, it obscures... Uh, the gravity and scope of the myriad security challenges in this sub-region by reducing them to being manageable through multilateral diplomacy. Second, uh, the model, um, predicated as it is on an inflated liberal vision of a regional this is quoting the Prime Minister, a regional institution which spans the entire Asia-Pacific region to encourage the development of a genuine and comprehensive sense of community. Uh, this, this kind of inflated liberal vision overlooks the strong track record of resistance in Northeast Asia to multilateral institutions. There is no evidence to suggest that initiatives couched in a pan-Asian rhetoric will fare any better in Northeast Asia than the more modest, yet still largely unsuccessful, six-party talks. Um, the six-party talks is the only multilateral security framework to have emerged in Northeast Asia over the past half-century. I want to start by looking at major power rivalry and realignments. Of all the contemporary developments in Northeast Asia, it's the shifting role of the major powers in Asia that will determine the future security dynamics in this sub-region. Strategic rivalry between major powers has a long uh, tradition in Northeast Asia, of course. As Chung-Min Lee observes, uh, in no other region is the prospect for long-term regional stability and prosperity so dependent on the level, or lack, 
of major power cooperation. Now, it's important not to confuse or conflate rivalry with confrontation. The two terms are, are, are quite different. Um, uh, confrontation implies a short-term readiness on the part of major powers to use force to achieve policy objectives. When we think of the Cuban Missile Crisis, for example, that's a classic confrontation. Um, while rivalry refers to a situation where major powers share a relationship characterised by underlying adversarial uh, tensions, uh, i.e. the superpower relationship for most of the Cold War. There's little doubt that the US remains um, the dominant power in Northeast Asia by dint of its economic presence, its unrivaled capacity to bring superior military capabilities to bear in almost all uh, contingencies, and its unrivaled uh, status globally. America's position in Northeast Asia is very much a legacy of its dominant role during the Cold War. Yet Washington is more reliant today, uh, more reliant than ever today, on eliciting the cooperation of other states in this sub-region in its endeavours to realise its strategic goals. Nowhere is this more obvious uh, than in America's dealings with China on uh, regional security issues. I should really use the term sub-regional security issues here because I am talking specifically about Northeast Asia. A good example of this, this American reliance, is in relation uh, to how the US and China both sought to deal with North Korea when it became clear uh, in, in the early part of this decade uh, that Pyongyang had decided to weaponise its nuclear program. The Bush administration encountered uh, mixed success in its attempts to persuade China to place pressure on Pyongyang not to weaponise in 2002 and 2003. Uh, and of course the North Koreans uh, with, um, um, kicked out all international atomic energy agency inspectors in late 2002 and subsequently withdrew from the Non-Proliferation Treaty in early 2003. While Beijing uh, appears to have conveyed its displeasure to Pyongyang by shutting down a critical oil pipeline to the DPRK in early 2003, China also made it clear uh, in the first half of 2003 that it would veto any draft resolution presented by the US to the UN Security Council condemning North Korea for withdrawing from the NPT. The initiation of the six-party talks the same year were a direct consequence, sorry, was a direct consequence of Chinese appeals to the US to engage Pyongyang multilaterally on the nuclear issue. And this was after Washington rejected bilateral talks and North Korea announced that it had no intention of reversing its decision to withdraw from the NPT. US-China rivalry is more multilayered than many observers acknowledge and its strong economic dimension distinguishes it from the rather narrow ideological military rivalry between the US and the USSR during the Cold War. So in this sense, the tendency among neo-realists, uh, John Mearsheimer, but people also like Aaron, Aaron Friedberg, Brad Thayer, uh, the tendency among neo-realists to draw parallels between the US-China relationship and the US-Soviet uh, relationship is rather misleading. And of course the attendant prescriptions in favour of containment, a fairly muscular form of, of offensive containment, are based on a simplistic, uh, simplistic analogy. In the case of the China-Japan relationship, often identified as having the potential to evolve into great power confrontation, there are perhaps fewer reasons to be optimistic. But it would be incorrect to assume that bilateral confrontation and serious tensions are necessarily inevitable. In addition to shared concerns over the need to safeguard valuable energy resources in the broader Asian region, China and Japan share one of the most interdependent relationships of any two states in the international system. 
yet unresolved historical issues, coupled with a deep mutual mistrust at the popular level, pose considerable challenges for Beijing and Tokyo in managing their relationship. China's burgeoning influence in Asia, coupled with its increasingly assertive posture on political security issues, worries Japanese policymakers. For its part, Beijing remains vigilant about Japan's growing strategic role and capabilities, particularly in the naval realm. An ongoing dispute over the East China Sea and concerns about Japan's threshold nuclear capability have the potential to escalate tensions despite close economic ties. As a uh, secondary power in Asia, Australia is acutely vulnerable to realignments among the major powers and, and to shifting balances of power. While Australia's great power ally, the US, continues to play an active balancing role in Northeast Asia, there's an appreciation among Australian policymakers that this won't last forever. In the absence of a US presence in Northeast Asia, Australia will clearly have an interest in ensuring that it's not squeezed by any of the major powers and that its economic and strategic interests are not compromised by great power rivalries. Although the stakes uh, for Australia uh, in achieving a great power equilibrium in Northeast Asia are very high, it has little, if any, real influence over shaping outcomes in this area. Great power dynamics have a logic uh, and momentum all of their own, and structural transformations in the balance of power at the regional level are essentially impervious to multilateral institutions. As John Mearsheim has observed, institutions are basically a reflection of the distribution of power in the world and are based on the self-interested calculations of the great powers. They have no independent effect on state behaviour. A country like Australia has very few options in responding to major power shifts in its regions. In its region. Its approach for the past 60 years has been to seek security within the great power system in Asia through an alliance with the US. If this is no longer an option in an era where China's rise eclipses America's position in the region, Australia's choices will be stark. Bandwagoning with regional states to balance uh, the influence of hegemonic major power or accommodating the latter through a process of engagement or indeed uh, possibly, um, possibly appeasement. The second challenge now, and related uh, to, to some of the points I've already been making, is uh, adjusting to China's rise. It's difficult to see how China's stunning rise to great power status won't continue well into the 21st century. Uh, when we look at China's current growth rates, um, this growth rate for 2009, the figures just came out yesterday, I think, a 10.7 annual growth rate. You know, leaves the others in that list seeing dust by and large. So it's difficult to see how this won't continue. But in a real way, in a real sense, the most striking dimension of China's economic power lies in its projected, its expected upward trajectory in, in the coming decades. Inevitably, China's rap rapid economic ascent has had significant flow-on effects in improving its ability to modernise uh, conventional and nuclear force assets since the end of the Cold War as well as uh, increasing China's political and diplomatic influence in foreign capitals, particularly in Asia. This newfound influence has been actively cultivated by Beijing, with considerable emphasis devoted to improving uh, China's diplomatic reach. Central to this, again, central to this has been the promotion of the perception among regional states that China's continuing rapid rise is assured. As Sean Breslin notes, a key source of China's non-hard power appears to be the way in which some in the region and beyond base their relations with China today on the well-founded expectation of continued growth and what they expect China to become in the future. China's spectacular economic performance, as we know, has raised questions and stirred debate 
uh, about whether it will remain content to play a benign leadership role in Northeast Asia or whether it will pursue a more aggressive posture aimed at securing regional hegemony. Although not actively opposed to the US strategic role in, in the Asia-Pacific, Beijing proactively uh, seeks to limit American influence in Northeast Asia. Uh, for China, uh, it's willing to absorb setbacks in Southeast Asia and even in Central Asia, but China sees Northeast Asia in strictly zero-sum terms and is unwilling to tolerate strategic losses, whether it be arms sales to Taiwan or potential military action against North Korea, Chinese policymakers regard Northeast Asia as a geostrategic space that belongs firmly within the PRC's sphere of influence. I think one of the things that's often overlooked is just how interdependent China's relations with its uh, Northeast Asian, with fellow Northeast Asian countries are. Uh, and it's simplistic to assume that China alone is gaining economic leverage that, will be, that it will be able to use unilaterally to its own strategic ends at some future point. This is often the narrative. Well, look, countries are running a risk here because they're engaging more deeply with China. They become increasingly vulnerable to China using economic leverage to achieve political objectives. But as Nanto and Chandler Avery point out, not only are Japan, Taiwan and South Korea becoming more dependent on China, but China's also becoming more dependent on their economy for imports and exports. Uh, China's upward uh, economic trajectory will remain vulnerable to external shocks and domestic turmoil. Uh, and Chinese analysts themselves are quite open, of course, about the considerable challenges facing Beijing, including uh, domestically, including the difficult coordination of economic and social development and projected uh, domestic, energy, uh, domestic energy shortfalls. Now, for Australia, the rise of China presents enormous challenges, as well as opportunities. Despite the extraordinary expansion of the bilateral economic relationship since, uh, since really since uh, the mid-1990s, Australian policymakers have exhibited caution in their dealings with China, particularly in the area of inbound foreign direct investment. Australian policy elites are remarkably open about the degree to which Australia has become dependent on China for its sustained economic growth. Most of you will recall the, uh, the very candid comments by Treasurer Swan as the GFC was unfolding in 2008, where he said, look, Australia is, is probably going to be okay because China's economic growth rate will, will continue and we will be protected against the harshest effects of this crisis. So Australian policymakers are quite open uh, about the degree of dependence in the economic relationship. That said, uh, this hasn't stopped them and perhaps has encouraged them. Uh, it hasn't stopped them from seeking to limit Chinese direct influence over key sectors of the national economy. And protests from Beijing seem to have made little impact on the willingness of Canberra to insist on tough preconditions for proposed Chinese investment in the mining sector in particular. I think it's interesting uh, Australia has sought to, some would argue, possibly appease Chinese interests in, in the Asia-Pacific. Others would say perhaps uh, be, you know, engage China with a view to playing a positive role in the region. In other words, not really offending China in the region at an international level, but domestically Australian policymakers have had fewer hang-ups about actually limiting Chinese, uh, Chinese influence in, in Australia. There's some evidence, evidence that Australia's accommodated China on the key issues of Taiwan and the short-lived quadrilateral dialogue. Remarks by the Howard government, uh, Alexander Downer at, uh, in Beijing in 2004, that Australia would not necessarily assist the US in a Taiwan Strait contingency, and the termination by the Rudd government in 2008 of Australia's participation in the uh, strategic dialogue process with India, Japan and the US, essentially in response to Chinese pressure, signalled something of a realignment in Australia's regional strategy. Outspoken criticism of Japan on the issue of whaling has juxtaposed with a focus on not offending Chinese sensibilities in the region. 
naturally in some quarters this has raised questions about whether China is drifting uh, sorry whether Australia is drifting towards China's orbit in Asia. I have doubts about this because it should be balanced against Australia's continuing strong alliance with the US that's, actually, that, that's reinforced by robust public support. Public opinion polls consistently show strong support for uh, the US alliance and there's been no weakening uh, in, terms of, in terms of indicators from the Rudd government that it's weakening its commitment to the alliance. And of course there's Canberra's evolving security relationship with Tokyo. Australia, uh, Australia became the first country in 2007 apart from the United States, to conclude a, secu a bilateral security agreement with Japan. That was significant. As I said, there's no evidence of weakening in Australia's commitment to the US alliance that would seem to undercut any argument that instances of accommodation of Chinese policy preferences, Taiwan, quadrilateral dialogue, are indicative of a broader strategic alignment. Notwithstanding the unprecedented uh, political and economic interaction between China and Australia, there remains a strong wariness of China's longer-term intentions among policy elites, something also mirrored in uh, public opinion surveys. And I think the Lowy Institute polls have kind of illuminated this trend since 2005, I think the first one was, uh, where there is still a high degree of, of wariness about China's uh, intentions in, in the region. And I think this certainly reflects the Australian government's position. Like other regional states, as Evelyn Goh argues, uh, Southeast Asian states and Australia has, has kind of pursued a similar strategy, that is adopting a blend of alignment strategies to capitalise on economic opportunities presented by China's rise, while at the same time guarding against adverse strategic consequences. Uh, it's a classic uh, understatement to observe that achieving this balance into the future will be the ideal outcome for Australian policymakers. And I very briefly now want to touch on the Korean Peninsula before moving on. To, uh, to a more focused uh, critique of the Rudd government's uh, security community concept. I won't run through the history of civil war between North and South Korea. Um, suffice it to say that for much of the, the post-Cold War period, for all of the post-Cold War period in effect, uh, relations between Seoul and Pyongyang have remained uh, trapped in a time warp of Cold War hostilities. Yet despite the massive uh, military build-up on the northern and southern sides of the DMZ, there's strong evidence that both sides remain deterred from initiating armed conflict or risking armed conflict by pushing the other side too far. This seems to have, this seems to have developed, there has developed a modus vivendi, a strategic modus vivendi between uh, North and South, a little bit like India or Pakistan. They seem to understand each other. The near certainty of defeat means that Pyongyang probably recognises that war would be tantamount to inviting South Korea and the US to institute regime change in the North. For the ROK and its American ally, the massive costs of any conventional conflict would dramatically eclipse any conceivable uh, strategic benefits that could be gained as a result of initiating war with North Korea. There are also strong grounds to conclude that Seoul and Washington are deterred by the prospect of North Korea using nuclear weapons against targets in the South and Japan. It's not to say a uh, conflict won't happen through a process of inadvertent escalation, but it is saying that there seems to be a, a strategic modus vivendi on the peninsula. The key motivating factor for Northeast Asian countries, and indeed uh, for most of the rest of the world, in their approach to all issues on the Korean peninsula, is the desire to preserve the status quo. That is, doing all they can to forestall developments that could threaten the survival of North Korea as a unitary state. So really concerns have moved over the last 10 to 20 years from preventing a war on the peninsula to preventing the collapse of North Korea. That's largely the focus uh, today. 
We know that China and South Korea provide substantial assistance to the DPRK, while Japan and Russia provided significant amounts of humanitarian aid. Only when Pyongyang has undertaken nuclear testing have these countries felt compelled to threaten the continuation of this assistance. Uh, the one country that's often identified uh, as having both the capacity and motive to remove uh, the Kim Jong-il regime, the US, has provided North Korea with uh, uh, well over uh, $1 billion in aid since the mid-1990s. And this aid uh, continued uh, under the Bush administration despite the more heated uh, comments from people like John Bolton uh, about the so-called criminal regime in Pyongyang. So there is a strong strategic, a geostrategic imperative here on the part of the US to maintain the regime through, through a kind of drip-fed um, uh, process of humanitarian assistance. The consensus is clear. The collapse of the DPRK, either through, the, either through implosion or the use of external force, would, would have seriously adverse consequences, both in the immediate and short term. For South Korea, in the short term, it would mean dealing with an influx of possibly hundreds of thousands of refugees from the north and the diversion of prodigious economic resources to help underwrite the transition to reunification on the peninsula. And that's something uh, any government, conservative or uh, social democratic in South Korea, does not want to face. China would lose a key buffer state in the event of a DPRK collapse, and like Seoul, would face the prospect of large numbers of North Korean refugees streaming into its territory, 1,400 kilometre front. So all key powers in the region agree that status quo should be the objective. Australia is uh, by no means a key player on the Korean Peninsula, but it does have a vested interest in what happens in this theatre. The Australia-ROK economic relationship has reached unprecedented heights and South Korea has developed a critical middle power role in Asia more generally, most notably through its role uh, as a partner in the ASEAN uh, plus three arrangement, the so-called APT arrangement. Moreover, the future of North Korea, in particular the fate of its nuclear weapons inventory, is of considerable concern to Australian policymakers. Australia is al already within range of China's intercontinental ballistic missile forces and may well be within range of North Korea's tapered-on ICBM forces before the end of this decade. Being subject to a direct nuclear strike from Pyongyang may sound like a remote possibility, but it's less remote than a nuclear strike from China. The extended deterrence umbrella provided to America's allies in Asia provides some assurance for Australian policymakers, but it's by no means likely to last with reports already emerging that the Obama administration is reviewing the role of extended deterrence in preparing the latest US, uh, US nuclear posture review due out at the end of this month. The potential trigger of North Korea's nuclear inventory for further proliferation in the region is something, uh, at the very least, that can't be lost on Australia's strategic planets. Um, just to keep everyone guessing, I've, I've subtitled the last section of this paper The Blind Alley of Multilateralism. That's a joke. And you won't guess. You'll know it's from there. Is Australia equipped to handle the three challenges outlined above? Well, um, a central theme in the analysis so far is that Australia, as a minor player in regional terms, will continue to enjoy little direct influence over shaping regional security dynamics in Northeast Asia. So it seems logical in some ways to assume that the optimum, perhaps the only way for Australia to promote its interests in Northeast Asia, is through advocating a greater role for multilateral institutions in the region. This is certainly a strong thread running through the Rudd government's advocacy of an Asia-Pacific security community, which is based on reifying, in the Prime Minister's words, the role of pan-regional institutions to enhance the positive dimensions of growing regional interconnectedness and manage any negative impacts. 
An underlying assumption in, in the government's rhetoric is that formal multilateral institutions can achieve positive security outcomes that informal traditional balance of power arrangements cannot. Yet for me there are several reasons to question the logic of this argument. The first relates to the low grade, the very low grade performance of multilateral security institutions in Northeast Asia, but also across Asia, uh, uh, Asia more generally in recent times. Supporters of enhanced institutionalism in Asia have argued strongly in favour of the need for transforming uh, the extant uh, six-party talks into a sub-regional forum to address broader security issues. Most recently, Steve Haggard and Marcus Nolan have outlined the concept of a Northeast Asia peace and security mechanism, which would aim to formally integrate sub-regional states. Nick Bisley from La Trobe has argued that the six-party talks, uh, in his words, have garnered sufficient political interest to make possible an ongoing multilateral mechanism to deal with security challenges in this relatively combustible region. According to Bisley, one of the uh, key contributions such a mechanism could make would be to, quote, establish a set of procedures to deal with any future sub-regional crisis. This view is similar to the position expressed by the Rudd government in support of expanding Northeast Asia's security institutions something Stephen Smith has been particularly vocal about. However, I think it's, it's important to point out, to make a very basic point, and that is that the six-party talks since 2003 have failed to achieve their primary mission, and that is to prevent North Korea from acquiring nuclear weapons. That is why the six-party talks were instituted in 2003. Now, if such a multilateral process cannot attain the objective it was mandated to achieve when it was instituted, what hope is there that it provides a foundation for dealing with future sub-regional crises of the type mentioned by Bisley uh, as and when they present themselves? And of course the limits to multilateral security institutions are evident more generally across the Asian region. Regional states belong to Asia-wide, already belong to Asia-wide institutions including the ASEAN Regional Forum. Uh, and to a lesser extent the East Asia Summit, which, which is not as representative as, as the ARF. But both of these bodies deal with security issues in only a very generic fashion and don't focus directly on outstanding security issues in Northeast Asia, steered as they are by ASEAN group members who place a premium on preserving their authority over Asian multilateralism uh, as a way of blunting American and Chinese influence in Southeast Asia Neither the ARF or the East Asia Summit, the EAS, have the institutional capacity to go beyond ritualistic declarations of common concern and identity building. And I think it's uh, interesting to note that since the ARF was formed in 94 um, with the 1995 concept paper, which essentially outlined the ARF's mission of confidence building, preventive diplomacy, conflict resolution, Observers generally argue, and I think there's a lot, of, a lot of truth in this, that the ARF hasn't moved beyond the first step of confidence building. And, and that's an issue in terms of what it, what, it's, what it can achieve and what it has achieved in the region. As we know, the tentative nature of security institutions in Asia is in stark contrast to the situation in Europe, where, where there is a long tradition of countries readily ceding key elements of their sovereignty to supranational institutions. And to be fair, the ASEAN Regional Forum, ASEAN members have, have always eschewed uh, the idea of, of supranationalism and of course the non-interference principle, the inviability of sovereignty principle you know, is, a key, is a key point in emphasising that you know, these institutions and future institutions uh, that are built in the region will not be supranational in, in the sense that uh, the EU has evolved. 
Europe's security dynamics are deeply intertwined with regional multilateral forums, most notably, of course, the Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the OSCE. And virtually all European countries have committed themselves to dealing with major security challenges within the framework of existing multilateral institutions. There's no basis for assuming, as the Rudd government and a number of other observers do, that a pan-regional security institution model on the OS, OSCE would have any more success than existing institutions in Asia in addressing security challenges, not just in Northeast Asia, but Asia more generally. And I think there is a reflexive tendency among a lot of proponents of security institutionalism in Asia to use the European model as a blueprint, which is a very unfortunate uh, tendency in my view. Perhaps most important of all, there remains little evidence to suggest the region's great powers, the major powers, are genuinely committed to building robust multilateral institutions to address Northeast Asia's security challenges. This is hardly surprising from a historical perspective, and it validates a key strand of realist theory about great power behaviour in practice. But it also owes something to a particular mindset about hierarchy among Asian states. Uh, as David Kang has argued, the notion of an established hierarchy among regional states retains stronger appeal in Northeast Asia than arguably any other region or sub-region in the international system. Hierarchy among states has a well-established tradition in Asia generally, and up until the 19th century, China was seen as the dominant state um, uh, and peripheral states as secondary states or vassals. This is in sharp contrast to the Western liberal tradition that stresses formal equality between states, as in the contemporary European institutional model. Residual elements of the tradition of hierarchy have dissipated to a much greater extent in Southeast Asia than in Northeast Asia, where there's greater resistance among the major powers to subjecting themselves to the uncertainties of multilateral processes on an equal footing with countries they deem to be lesser powers. Finally, the principle of sovereignty remains highly prized among Northeast Asian states. Regional states tend to value traditional Westphalian notions of sovereignty more highly than their European counterparts. As a result, they've been generally more suspicious of multilateral forums and the perceived potential to dilute key aspects of their sovereign prerogative on important security issues. And this, is, this has been evident even in Southeast Asia of course, among ASEAN states where uh, regional institutions have been sovereignty conforming rather than genuine, genuinely supranational in the European mould. Just into the conclusion. As Alan Gingell has observed, Australia has a long-standing preference for multilateral approaches to dealing with key foreign policy challenges, which in turn mirrors a belief that as a middle-sized power, Australia alone cannot shape the world. Countries' interests are best served by encouraging the development of international norms and laws that would help balance Australia's relative weakness." Unquote. The Rudd government's Asia-Pacific security community proposal appears to stem from a deep belief, uh, I would argue verging on faith, that international institutions can play a central role in shaping Asia's strategic destiny. It's a case built on classic liberal institutionalist foundations that have featured as an abiding element in Labor's foreign policy tradition. Now, of course, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with the argument that institutions can help to offset the worst effects of systemic anarchy in international relations. We only have to imagine how the world would have evolved after 1945 without the UN. Yet the argument that institutions are necessary to address Asia's emerging security challenges is uh, unconvincing. So too is the untested assumption that Asia will be worse off without pan-regional, a so-called pan-regional security institution. 
The view often put forward that Asia lags behind Europe in its ability to manage its security affairs due to the absence of region-wide multilateral institutions. Sorry, this is an assumption that's often put forward, is that Asia often lags behind Europe uh, in this area. In adopting this approach or, or accepting this, this logic, there's a risk that a multilateral security institution of the OSCE type becomes an end in itself rather than a means to promoting conflict avoidance among states. This kind of um, focus on developing formal procedures and rules without perhaps looking at how they'll work in practice or indeed whether they'll work in practice, where the means, in a sense, becomes the ends. And this is often evident, I think, in a lot of the commentary among academics on, and, and indeed among many people in government, uh, in, in the foreign affairs bureaucracy about multilateral institutions. The focus is on the process, not the outcome, which I think is unfortunate. It's worth pointing out that despite its lack of security institutions, with the exception of the brief Sino-Soviet border armed clash in 1969, Northeast Asia hasn't experienced armed conflict since the Korean War. While Europe has been the site, of course, of large-scale civil war and interstate conflict in the Balkans, for most of the post-Cold War era, certainly in the 90s. Australia confronts some daunting challenges in Northeast Asia in the years ahead. In conclusion, the tools it has at its disposal to protect its national interests in this part of Asia are limited. Advocating uh, modest multilateral initiatives, I would argue informal uh, multilateral initiatives to build confidence amongst the major powers should be part of Australia's strategic policy but grand visions of a pan-Asian security institution should not form the centrepiece of Australia's strategy. Such a construct is ill-suited to addressing Australia's emerging security challenges in Northeast Asia. The Rudd government would be well advised to look more closely at the poor track record of multilateral security institutions in the region and their fundamental limitations in influencing balance of power politics in Northeast Asia. In thinking about ways in which to deal with security challenges in the 21st century, policymakers should concentrate Australia's meagre diplomatic resources on leveraging the existing avenues of influence they have at their disposal. These avenues are primarily bilateral in nature, the most important of which is Australia's alliance with the US, its close security relationship with Japan, and expanding strategic dialogue with South Korea, and access to senior Chinese elites by dint of the Sino-Australian economic relationship and an emerging yet still embryonic uh, strategic dialogue process with, with China at the bilateral level. The trilateral strategic dialogue process Australia shares with the US and Japan presents another key forum for achieving security objectives in Northeast Asia. In conclusion, while it may offend the purer instincts of liberal institutions, institutionalists in government, academia and think tanks, Australia could do a lot worse than seek to muddle through by exploiting what it has, as distinct from what it would like, more effectively. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au/podcasts.